This is a recording of a series of expositions in the Epistle to the Ephesians. The special portion under consideration is in the practical section, chapter 4, and this time we have entitled it, The Wardrobe, or Something to Put On. Ephesians 4, verses 20 to 32. It is our custom in these meetings to join in reading a portion of scripture together. Should those of you who are listening in to this recording care to join us, will you just switch off for a moment or two while we all read together Colossians chapter 3. We have already seen that the unity of the Spirit, which occupies the first part of Ephesians 4, is really an outworking of that which has already been defined in chapter 2. In verse 16 we have that he might reconcile both unto God in one body. And in verse 18 we have through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. So we've got some of the elements of the unity of the spirit there. The one body, the one spirit, and the Father. And now we shall find that it harks back again to this same chapter because the passage we are considering urges us to put on the new man. But in chapter 2, verse 15, we read these words, Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make, and you know now that that word make is the word create, for to create in himself of the twain one new man, so making peace. So before ever the practical section urges you and me to put on the new man, we've already been told that that new man has been created by God. Practice is only putting on externally, manifestly, what God has wrought within. We do not make the new man any more than we create the unity of the Spirit. We only keep the unity of the Spirit which God has made. We can only manifest the new man if the new man of the heart has already come under the creative touch of the Redeemer. Just in passing, there's no need for me to remind you, I hope, that in modern language, the word to put on sometimes can be a very bad meaning. Whatever we do, never let us put on a sanctimonious attitude and pretend that that's holiness. We don't want to put on anything like that. We can only put on that which the Lord has provided. Now we shall notice that we have here an alternation. Chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 give us walk positively. Walk worthy. And stresses the quality of mind that should go with it. With all lowliness, or as you know the word is, all humility of mind. Then our thoughts are directed to the goal, the perfect man, the perfect man, and the consequence speaking the truth and holding the head. Then he comes back to the word walk again, this time negatively. Walk not, as Gentiles. And again it speaks about the mind, this time not the humility of mind, but the vanity of mind, that's negative. Then he comes out again, to the, not this time the perfect man, but the new man. It again stresses truth, putting away lying, speak every man truth, but this time it doesn't stress the head, 
It stressed the members. So we are members one of another. You see, it's an all-round aspect of truth. You walk positively, you mustn't walk like this negatively. You have the perfect man in view, and you have the new man now to put on. The perfect man is the goal to which you press. The new man can be exhibited immediately. Well now you know we have used the symbol of a large house, uh, one of the ancient uh, buildings and homes in England, where you have room after room used for all sorts of purposes. We had the monument room, we've had the chapel of acknowledgement, and so now we've come to the wardrobe. And uh, in all places uh, where there is any sort of society and life, especially if it has to do with nobility, you must have the characteristic clothing. There's a symbolism in the Bible of clothing right from the very beginning. The very first craft that's ever spoken of in the scriptures is sewing. And then the very first thing that God provided were coats. And so it goes on right through the word. The high priest has his robes of glory and beauty. Or he has his one white robe for the day of atonement. When Jacob would single out Joseph and give him the insignia of being the chosen and the firstborn in the family, he gave him the coat of many colours. We have figures like this. He put on zeal as a cloak. We are told to gird up the loins of your mind. And when you live in a land where they have flowing robes, you will understand that you cannot start doing very active work unless you gird up. And in our English equivalent, we used to say to one another, whether we do now, it may be that trade unions won't allow you to do this, I don't know, we say buckle to. And buckle to is the same thing. Tighten your clothing up so they don't get in the way. There we have all sorts of different references to garments from the book of Genesis to the book of the Revelation. Those that come out prominently in Isaiah, remember, the garments of salvation and the robe of righteousness. So although the man is so much more than the clothes he wears, there is a symbolism running right through scripture. And the symbolism is teaching us this. The clothing itself is nothing of itself. But the clothing itself manifests something. And even today, even today, I was only speaking to a lady who was at the meeting here uh, over the Saturday, and one of her sons went to uh, a hotel uh, to take part in a function, and he had to borrow a tie from the waiter. Well, you see, there's a certain limit to walking into a place with an open neck shirt and showing all your chest. Some people think that's a very fine thing to do, but it isn't. It's not respecting the other people. So they say to you, you can't come in here, friends, I'm sorry, you must wear a tie. You say, oh, how ridiculous. No, there's a symbolism. There's a something uh, that, that's right. You'd be outraged if you learned that the judge, sitting at Old Bailey, trying a man for his life, turned up in a golf seat. You say, why wear a wig? Why have all... That turns that man from a mere Mr. So-and-so into a symbol of, of right, law, justice. The man out there holds up the traffic. 
he's only built so-and-so or Tom so-and-so when he's home, but in his, uh, in his costume, the helmet and the symbol of his uh, rank, he's got a legal position. The soldier is obliged to have a regimentals so that the enemy should be able to treat him as a soldier and not shoot him as a spy. So he, he runs right through everyday life as well as in the scriptures. And so we have this emphasis upon the wardrobe, as we call it. Enduo, which is the word here to put on, is found, just by way of giving you one illustration, in Matthew 6.25. So that you can just get one to show that the use of this word is definitely associated with clothing. Matthew 6.25 Therefore I say unto you, take no thought for your life what you shall eat, or what you shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than the meat, and the body than raiment? What you put on is raiment. And so, while we mustn't be slaves, either to fashion, or to the mere clothing we wear, there is a certain amount of reason and right that we should remember its symbolism. In the New Testament, it is not used so frequently as in the Old and it is particularly employed in connection with the yet glorious future when this corruption shall put on incorruption and this mortal shall put on immortality. That's the main way in which it is used in the New Testament. It is something provided by God, something reserved by him for us, something given to us at the right time and we put it on. You remember the parable? A man had entered into a wedding feast. How he got there, we're not quite sure. There were gate crashes in those days as there are now. But he couldn't carry that very far. But the king coming in looked at him and said, Friend, how comest thou in here, not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And he was removed. And neither you, nor I, nor anybody can dispense with the clothing. Not one of us dare contemplate standing in that glory without the garments of salvation and the robe of righteousness. And then when we get to chapter 6, we put on something else. We put on armour. Because that also has to do with uh, part of our practical outworking of truth. Well, so far, that's just to put the thing more or less before us. Now it says here, verse 20, after contrasting the darkened understanding, the ignorance, the alienation, the lasciviousness, the uncleanness, which characterized a poor, godless, ignorant Gentile, of which we were connected, with, with whom once we were connected, it says, but ye have not so learned Christ. Not so learned Christ. So when he says learned Christ, he means all the truth that's associated with him. You can't, couldn't possibly have sat at his feet and learned of him and practiced these things. The man who was devil-possessed, you remember, was seen sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. It goes on to say, not only that you have not so learned Christ, but if so be ye have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. Christ Jesus. 
why does he change? It's very, very seldom Paul uses the name Jesus. In Philippians he uses it, that in the name of Jesus, that one who was known as Jesus, every knee shall bow. That's a glorious thought. In the Gospels, it's continually spoken of as Jesus. But you do notice this, don't you, that nobody went up to him in the Gospels and said, Jesus, it's the Father who is speaking about his son, and his son's name was Jesus. We don't call him that. Nobody called him that who loved him. So when the Apostle does use the name Jesus, as he does once or twice, you'll nearly always find that he's looking at the man. You see, you have not so learned Christ. There he is at the right hand. No sorrow there. No temptations there. No trouble there. Just serene peace. Oh, you say, that's all very well to be there, but what about down here? He said, as the truth is in Jesus, that he was down here. He walked this earth. He knew what it was to be misunderstood, to be misrepresented, to be outcast, to be even crucified. The truth that's in Jesus is the thing that you have learned of Christ. There's no divorcing. So he's going to make this bear upon practical issues. That she put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbour, for we are members one of another. That's more or less the exhortation which is before us this evening. First of all, do notice this. That you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man. And if you look to Colossians chapter 3 to get the parallel, verse 9, Lie not one to another, seeing that you put off the old man with his deeds. It is not the old man himself, pure and simple. It's the old man with his deeds. It's the old man with his conversation. You cannot put off the old man. That was done by Christ. You can only put off his deeds and his manner of life. There's a difference. So the first passage I'm going to turn to is not in Ephesians 4, but in Romans 6, where the work was done. Romans 6. We read here, verse 6, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him. The verb is in what is called the aorist, and among other meanings, it means a thing that's finished. Done. Our old man was crucified with him. It's over. As the Apostle uses the perfect tense in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. Not merely I am. It's done. Here's where the work was done. And I have read, in days past, a magazine that was very much devoted to the instigation to the Lord's people, to holiness and victorious life. And there's very ne- great need for a clarion call to that holiness and a victorious life. But unfortunately, it used to tell people to crucify themselves. Crucify this, crucify that, crucify the other. You cannot do what the Son of God did. 
You're never told to crucify the old man. That's already, thank God, done. Here it says, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, and as a consequence, the body of sin might not merely be destroyed. The word means to be rendered inoperative. As we use the figure, put a spoke in his wheel. But the old man is not just annihilated. Not yet. You've only got to think of what you do and what you say. Never mind about what I do and what I say to know that the old man sometimes has a little look in. He's going to warn you in this chapter 4 that you can, you can let him have a chance if you will. But the crucifixion didn't kill him but it transfixed him. It put him there. Now he says, that the body of sin might be rendered inoperative, it need not dominate you, that henceforth you should not be a slave to sin. You see? You need not. So that now we've got this behind us in chapter nine, uh, chapter 6 of Romans, we can begin to contemplate a little bit more, uh, perhaps uh, without fearing, this idea of putting off and putting on. You'll notice that it says you put off concerning the former conversation the old man and you're renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now the word renewal is passive. You can't renew your mind. That's done. God renews the mind. It's passive. And in verse 24 you put on the new man which is created. That's active, but it's not your act. So far as you're concerned, you're just as passive as ever. God alone creates. So you see, we've got an interweaving. Something you do, because something God has done. And if he's never done the one, you'll never do the other. If you haven't been renewed by God, well, it's a vain thing to struggle to put on or put off this old man. But if he has renewed you, if he has created as you come into that new sphere, then he says to you, now, I've done the work. I've done the great thing. I'm asking you now to rise and walk in newness of life and serve in newness of spirit. And he gives you the strength so to do. But there must be never any attempt to do what Christ alone could do. Christ alone could crucify the old man. Christ alone could create the new. And when we see that, Oh, what courage it gives us to think, well, if he's done that, he's opened the door, he's set us free, he lets loose more power than ever we can use, and so we can contemplate it with a certain amount of uh, serenity. There is a relationship between the present and the future, and that relationship is associated with mind and body. Those of you who were at the meeting on Sunday morning might remember that we were looking at the references to body and mind in the epistle to the Philippians. And among other things we notice this. The mind of Christ now. Now. Let this mind be in you. Now. That's chapter 2. Chapter 3 says, Who shall change this body of our humiliation that it may be transfigured like unto his body of glory. Future. Mind now. Body then, 
how God works. The outward man is perishing, but the inward man now is being renewed. And so coming to Colossians again, you'll find this mind is associated with this creation. Verse 10, And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. It's an echo of the first creation. The first man was created in the image of God. And he is a new creation. This is the mind that's being touched by the creator in preparation for a new creation where mind and body will be in absolute harmony. It's no good, friends, us looking down the ages and contemplating that one day we're going to have a body like unto his body of glory without having a mind like unto his. You know what happens when the mind and the body are not on all fours. You've got an idiot who you've got a a person that has to be put away. So now the mind is being instructed and renewed and is beginning to respond. One day he'll give it a body as it pleases him and to every seed its own body. And then when body and mind are there, that's glory. And so we're beginning, just the beginnings of it here in this very life in which we live. And do remember, it is now. We were looking in the early, in the Wednesday meeting at those wonderful words in the first epistle of John. We looked at them on the Sunday afternoon. As he is, so are we in this world. Not waiting for the future, that's coming. But in this world, with all its vexation, with all its temptation, with all its snares, in this world, as he is, we are. That gives us strength to begin to realise that he has us by the hand. There's full provision and that we should seek to walk worthy of such a calling. Now, with regard to these words that we are dealing with, you might notice this feature. We have put off, put on, put away. Then in between we have be renewed and this thing that's created. So they're related. We can only put on and we can only put off because God has already done the essential thing. Now there are at least two words which are translated by the word new. I think we ought to observe them. We have the word kainos. I'll spell it because it's useful for you to know for looking up at any time. K-A-I-N-O-S. That's one word that is translated new. The other word is neos, which comes more into our language, like neology and so on. N-E-O-S. Now they differ. The two of them are found in Colossians 3.10, so we'll go back to that passage once more. And I'll slip the words in where they should come. And have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. And have put on the neos man which is kynost in knowledge. You see the two words. The new man which is renewed. There's the two words. Now they have a little different outlook. I'm quoting from one of my own writings. I don't suppose that's a sin, is it, friends? I, I wrote these words down and I thought, well, 
I don't think I can improve on them just now. I'll read what I said about these two words. In other words, we are put on the new, young, rejuvenated man, fresh and vigorous, with all the glorious future stretching out into its limitless possibilities by the grace of God. As one word. And we have been renewed with a life that beside the empty tomb looks back at a past, dead, buried, excluded, finished. Neos turns our faces toward Christ, the last Adam. Kainos looks back to the first Adam. The one affirms life has begun. The other, that life is finished. Two aspects of the word new. One looking back and saying, this is new, that's all over. The other looking forward says, that's all over, this is in front of me. That's our position, friends. We're just between the two. One day, one day, he that hung upon a cross will sit upon a throne. And he's going to say, behold, I make all things new. That will be the time, won't it? But we are anticipating it. If any man be in Christ, there's a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, new things have come into being. And these new things are of God. So we're anticipating it now. We are first fruits of his creatures. Even though we may, may not much of a show of it, it's begun. Let's be thankful. First the blade, then the ear, then the full corn in the ear. So that is the emphasis upon this word new. We are to put on. But that isn't what it says first. Because if you put on, you might be covering up a lot of old clothes underneath. I don't know whether it's still true, but in punch, once now and again you see a little jibe at the cab driver, somebody standing at night and he wants change and the cab driver's unbuttoning coat after coat after coat after coat to get to this mythical change. Well, we don't want to put on. No, no, friends, no, no. Put off first. In the prophet Zechariah, he saw the high priest standing before the angel clothed in filthy garments. Now what did the angel do? Did he say, oh, just cover them up? Is some people's conception of the work of Christ is just covering up? Oh no, oh no. He takes away first. Then he gives you a change of raiment. He says, take away the filthy garments. Give him a change of raiment. That's what Lord, the Lord's done to us, friends. If you were to look beneath, it says, about the princess in Psalm 45, is it? <clears throat> Her garments are all needlework and she is glorious within. And you don't want to be merely decked up and needlework outside and want a good bath underneath. Oh no, that's all done. Your body's washed with pure water, then clothed with the garments of salvation and the robe of righteousness. So here it says, first of all, you put off. And what do you put off? The conversation that was once normal with you. The former conversation. Belonging to the old man. 
And that conversation is corrupt. Would you look down at verse 39? He's back to it. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. It used to. I was really touched downstairs at the men's meeting. One man who has only been a Christian for a matter of months was very concerned, very agitated. He began to shrink when he heard some of his companions taking the name of Christ in a blasphemous way. And yet he said, I used to do it myself. Isn't that just the story? Of course, we had to try to say to him, well, don't condemn them. Rather pity them. Say to them, oh yes, I did it myself. But if once your eyes were open to see what that Christ is to me and can be to you, you wouldn't do it. It's putting on as well as putting off. But the two must go together. So you first of all take off the filthy garments and you stand and you wait. You can do nothing. But before you put on anything more, you direct it to inside as well as outside. Our version says, and be renewed. That's not a direct, directing us to do anything. The passive here suggests that we're standing. We can't do anything about it. God is. Colossians says he's creating in the mind. So it's an act of creation. So now we have, we put away the conversation that belonged to the old man. God begins the renewing of the mind within. Oh, now we're ready for something further. And if you put on the new man, this is something which has been provided for you by Christ. This is the anticipation of the glorious day when body, soul, spirit shall be absolutely complete and like him. You put away, you are renewed, you put on. What do you put on? The new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. Just wonder what true holiness is. I don't think there can be a false holiness in my idea, can there? The words are put in this order. Holiness of truth. Truth. You know, this truth keeps coming out in this as though it's an integral part Verse 14, that we henceforth be no longer children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive, but speaking the truth in love. Truth. Then presently he says, Ye have not so learned Christ, if so be that ye have heard him, and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus. Truth. Here it says, this creation of the new man is in the holiness of truth. And then it says in verse 25, Wherefore putting away lying, speak every man truth. You can't get away from this element of truth, can you? And there's a contrast, an intended contrast. The word lying has softened this down a little bit. Because strictly speaking, it's the lie. Repudiating the lie. What does it mean by the lie? You remember the words of our Saviour in John the 8th chapter speaking of Satan? 
He was a liar from the beginning. And the father of it, what? The lie. He imposed upon men the lie. Romans 1 gives you the word, the lie. Not merely lying, I think we ought to see that, do you? Romans 1. Speaking about the wrath of God coming upon men, because they had some knowledge of him, which they left. Verse 21. Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Do you remember Ephesians 4? The darkness, the ignorance that was in them, the vanity of their mind, here it is again. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like a corruptible man, and to birds, and to four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, Ephesians 4 says, lasciviousness, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie. That's bad enough. But the actual translation is a little bit more like this. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. For the lie. So you see, we're facing the fact that right from the beginning, earliest days, there's been a conflict between the truth and the lie. And our Saviour is the representative of truth. And the evil one is the representative of the lie. And these are contrary one to another. You cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot be serving truth and ministering the lie. You've got to repudiate the one if you put on the other. So he says, you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness of holiness of truth, and repudiate putting away the lie. Not merely lying. It's bad enough for anyone, any one of us to tell lies. But that's not what it means. That's only a small part of it. It's the great doctrine that dominates the thoughts of men which is the lie. Exchanging the truth of God, all that that means for the lie. Satanic uh, misrepresentation. I think we better get the other reference to the lie now we've gone so far. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2. It speaks about him, verse 9, whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. Well, what's the alternative? And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie. So what took place in Romans 1 in the past is going to take place again. They knew God. They did not worship him as God. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie and God gave them up. Here is the same thing. All deceivableness of unrighteousness because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. So they have a strong delusion that they should believe the lie. It's a dreadful thing to say, but it's there. 
If a person will persist in following the lie, in spite of all the things that God does, all the evidence he provides, there may come a time when he'll leave you to your own resources. It's a dreadful, horrible thing to think, but it's written in Scripture. He that being often reproved and hardened his neck shall suddenly be cut off, that without remedy. In this battle of the lie and the truth, you cannot take chances. God does. And so, sometimes it's need for us to ring out the words which are given in the scripture. Who is on the Lord's side? Who is on the Lord's side? He has chosen his redeemed people that they may be good soldiers. And it's required in a soldier that at least he should be loyal. Darkness against light. The lie against the truth. Good against evil. Death against life. Oh, it's a pitch battle. And we're in the middle of it. So he says, repudiating the lie, let us speak every man truth with his neighbour. It looks as though, once we've seen the truth of God, it should sort of colour all our attitude. We belong to the truth. It's the class to which we belong. It's the character that should be ours. There should be no sort of idea that we can play fast and loose with truth. Truth of the gospel. Truth of doctrine. Truth in practice. Truth in everyday life. Truth in all our outgoings. And then he says, for we are members one of another. I wonder why that. Well, he says, you see, you could never act you can never act independently. Whatever you do will have some reflection upon somebody else. And if you're a member of the body of Christ, it will either be for the good or for the evil of some other member. If one member suffers, all suffer. So he says, we're members one of another. In one place he says, hold the head. The other place he says, remember the members. And so the two go together, ever seeking to walk worthy of such a calling, ever remembering that we are members one of another with a responsibility. Now he comes from this general doctrinal statement to things to do with its outworking. He says in verse 26, Be ye angry and sin not. I've met a good many people who are very glad that that's written. They lose their wool. They go off the deep end. There's all sorts of ways in which you cover this up. You have righteous indignation. Oh yes. Oh, I know that Christ, our Saviour, turned in anger upon somebody. Uh, but uh, I don't think we've quite reached his standards yet, do you? It says, be ye angry and sin not. Be ye angry. It's telling you to be angry, but don't sin. But what about verse... 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, all of it. Well now, that's a contradiction. It says in one case, well be angry but don't sin, and in the other case is, well put away the lot. Uh, what does he mean? Has he altered his tone or, or have we missed something? Well friends, you must know this. That in the original language, the words, be ye angry, and the question, can you be angry, are exactly the same word. It just depends upon the way in which it's placed. So 
Supposing we put the other way around then and ask ourselves the question, can you be angry and sin not? Right, get away with it, friends. You're all right. But I think most of us, most of us, if we were honest, we say, well, when I do get angry, I feel perilously near, you know, something that's not quite right. Look, I'll ask you this question. You have been angry sometimes, haven't you, with somebody? Violently angry. Did you feel any impulse when that was all over to go into your room and kneel down and say, Lord, I thank thee, I was righteously angry tonight? Well, did you? Well, I never have. Of course, I may be lower down the scale than you are. I know sometimes I've had to resort to that, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, I'm at nine, ten, before I speak. But it may be a good job I do say ten, because the old man has a peep out there sometimes when you're righteously indignant. And you see what you what you might do? You see what the danger is? You might open the door to the devil. Don't you think that's impossible? Because you're a believer and saved. Look what it says. Supposing we take the translation. Can you be angry and sin not? Then he answers you. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Neither give place to the devil. First of all. Whatever happens. Don't let it last. And do remember this. That the first man who was angry with his brother. Took his brother's life. So here you see. This is putting off the old man with his conversation and deeds, isn't it? I would suggest to you that it would be best to be on the safe side and say, well, I think I'd better put away all anger rather than indulge in that little spot of righteous anger. But I don't think it will always be quite so pure as you hope it would. It will be adulterated. Now it descends to what we in common parlance speak of brass tacks comes right down to something. Let him that stole steal no more. Of course in polite society you'd hardly like to say let him that stole steal no more but these weren't polite. These believers were without God, without Christ, without hope in the world. And they stole. Well he says don't do it anymore. He's just coming right down to these facts. He says that must not be that him that stole steal no more. But he doesn't put it merely as a negative. He puts it as a positive. But rather, let him labour, working with his hands. You see, the suggestion is that they stole because there's an easier way to get money than work for it. But he says, no, not now. Oh, not now. But he said, I'm not telling you just to work and labour, to accumulate for your own. Oh no, oh no, he said, there's another aspect. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labour. Working with his own hands a thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Not that he may have, but that he may have to give. That puts a new complexion on it, doesn't it? And then he goes all over again, not with deeds, but with words. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. And in the epistle to the Colossians, which traverses the same ground, he puts it this way. Let your speech be seasoned with salt. Oh, we have got to watch 
this wonderful gift we have of speech. It seems such a thousand pities to me sometimes. And I can sit and laugh at things. Don't believe that I sit there with a straight face. I can giggle at old goons or whatever they are sometimes and let off a little bit of steam. But when you think of the marvellous, the marvellous instrument which is now at the disposal of men to take language, send it for thousands of miles, have it reproduced, and you say the stuff they put over. This glorious gift of articulate speech. It's prostituted, isn't it, so many times. I don't mean to say we should never have any fun. We should. But all oh, some of the, what do we call it, tripe. Well, it's not even tripe, but that's good for people if they've got a bad digestion. All let us remember that one of the characteristic marks of man, as distinct from all the rest of creation that we know, is the gift of speech. And if you go back to the creation of Adam, that's the first thing that he was entrusted to do. Do you know that? After man was created, God brought before him the animal creation that was there, and whatever name Adam attached to that animal, that was its name thereof. Well now, of course, you might think that he simply says, this is a moo, and this is a bow wow. I don't know. But when you read the names of the animals in the book of Genesis, they're all intelligible words. I think it was a very good word when he looked at a serpent and said, brazen. That hard shine on it. Nakesh, a piece of brass. Nahushkim, when they worship the serpent. Well, that's one of many. Language. If you have a puzzle as to how Adam could be created at this minute, and then five minutes after be talking with his maker, just think of the creation of the water into wine, just like that. What would take a year to do by nature? Christ did like that. Well, how did you learn to speak your language, friends? Now, don't tell me you went to school. No, no. You were speaking 19 to the dozen before ever you went to school. i tell you where you learned it. At home. Just as your mother spoke to you and you responded, you never once said, Mum, why is bread called bread? You never bothered. That was bread, right. So what takes just five years to do? God did in five minutes with Adam. Just all, just spoke with him. And he responded. Because Adam must have understood the meaning of words. How could you give him a prohibition? How could you give him a law? How could you threaten him with death if he didn't know what you meant? So let's prize this gift of language, shall we? Let's realise what a wonderful thing it is. That we can not only speak about things that we see, but we can talk intelligently about things that no one's seen. No one has seen faith, or patience, or love, except in its manifestations externally. But we can talk about them. So he says to you and to me, Oh, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. But that which is good, so he's on the same. Let your work be that which is good. Let your words be that which is good. To the use of edify, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. So if you earn any money by the labour of your hands, it's largely that you may have to give. And if you value the gift of language, it shall minister grace to your hearers. And then, in perfect balance with the words, 
neither give place to the devil, come the next words, and grieve not the Holy Spirit of God. You see the possibilities in this walk? You might give place to the devil, and you might grieve the Spirit of God. Doesn't break the fact that these two are possibilities. I remind you that you have been sealed by that Spirit of God unto the day of redemption. All think of that. And so he sums it up. Let all bitterness, all bitterness. Colossians, you see, says, just the one thing it says about husbands and wives, just the one thing, that they be not bitter. Looks as though there was a, all sorts of opportunities and possibilities in married life for bitterness to come in. So the scripture says, so I seem to sense when I go into people's houses, so I sense when I read the newspapers, bitterness. Here it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour. Clamour is to raise your voice. And some people, when they're arguing, they think that they're going to prove their point by shouting you down. Doesn't matter how much you shout if it's wrong, friends. Clamour. Evil speaking. Be put away from you. So here it is, he says up here further. Putting away the lie. Speaking the truth. Putting away bitterness and wrath and anger and clamour and evil speaking. And all malice. And instead of that, be ye kind one to another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another. There are two words in Ephesians for forgiving. In Ephesians 1, 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, that means to set a prisoner free. That's the day of liberty. And that's one thing you and I can't do. No. If anyone has offended us or done us harm, and we forgive them, that's as far as we can go. We can't break the shackles. We can't set them free. God can. But within our limits, this word doesn't mean to set free, but it means to act graciously. Forgive is a little bit like forego. You don't exact what is your due. That's gracious. I suppose you know that the word forgive and the word pardon are exactly the same, don't you? F-O-R and P-A-R are the same, and G-I-V-E, give, and D-O-N, don, donation, that's the same. It's the same word from two roots. So whether you pardon anybody or whether you forgive them, it comes to the same thing in the end. Although, in common use, uh, you say, say, oh, pardon me, that's just for ordinary everyday things, you forgive real offences. And be ye kind. Kind. Have I read about this kindness before? I have. Chapter 2. Verse 7. That in the ages to come, God, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. He's going to show kindness to us, friends. What about showing a little kindness to one another? Why... Why not seek to reflect in our attitude to each other a little bit of that which you show to us? Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. In the, in the Lord's Prayer, our Saviour says, If 
you forgive, my Father will forgive you. And if you do not forgive, my Father will not forgive you. That doesn't say so here. He says, God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. Oh, won't you then forgive one another? It says in Colossians, if any have a quarrel against one another, so it even says it's a possibility that even members of the one body may have a quarrel. Oh yes, that may be so. But let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Act graciously as God has acted. Now the last verse is the first verse of the next chapter. Be ye therefore followers. Now that's not the word that means a disciple. It's the word that means a mimic. It's the word that gives us our English word pantomime. M-I-M-E. Imitators. Mimics. You know that little children imitate and mimic the grown-ups with whom they're mixed. Well, in the right sense, that's what we should do. Be imitators, mimics, followers of God as children of love. And that leads us on to the next development. Let me remind you. We have the first emphasis to walk in Ephesians 4.1 followed by the perfect man. We have the next emphasis upon walk in the negative sense followed by the new man. Now we have the threefold walk which we're going to meet in chapter 5 as it comes down to everyday life. It's one thing to talk about the new man and the perfect man. But what about home? What about business? Oh, you say, that doesn't come in. God says it does. So, God willing, next time we meet together, we'll see what God has to say with regard to the way in which the belief in this glorious truth of Ephesians should in some measure colour our relationships one to another in the things of everyday life, home and business.